The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Sabe. This week's topic, Gold Wars. And later in the program, we'll pass it on to our colleagues in Hong Kong who will discuss Huawei's ongoing public relations challenge. But first, there's a battle brewing among gold miners in the United States and Canada. This story has everything, hostile takeover attempts, puny premiums, big executive egos. It begins with three companies, Barrett Gold, Newmont Mining, and perhaps my favorite name ever, Gold Corp. So here to walk us through the nuggets, visiting our New York studio from Singapore is our colleague, Clara Fiera Marquez. Hi, Clara. Hi. And joining us on the horn from London is our colleague, George Hay. Hello, George. Good afternoon. All right. So we've got a bunch of threads to the story. So let's start with Barrett Gold. Um, Clara, why don't you take us through kind of the history and the backstory of, of how all these things kind of fit together and what's going on? Well, it's important to put to come back a little bit further and really think about why this is happening in gold, why it's happening now. And to put it in context, the whole of the mining sector had a an absolute frenzy of deals in about... 2010, 2011, most of them quickly soured. It was all written down, Mm. very painful, and the deals came to an end. This is the first time that we've really seen a lot of activity, and it's quite specific to gold because there just isn't enough gold to go around. The companies do not have enough ounces. So they need, you know, if you can't dig them up yourself out of what you have, you have to go and buy somebody. Yeah. So what we've seen over the last few months, we saw Barrick buy Rangold, um, and then in quick succession, Newmont making a bid for Gold Corp. Okay. And then shortly after that, Barrick making a bid for Newmont. So okay. just to go walk that back. So Barrick for Rangold um, was an interesting deal. Rangold's an African-focused miner. It's all about growth. And really what Barrick were doing there was they were buying some growth assets and a management team. Now, Newmont for Gold Corp slightly different. Really, it's about scale, um, something that in general I think we don't necessarily think is wise, but they really want it to be a bit bigger. They think they can apply their better management to Gold Corp's assets. The more interesting piece happens shortly after that when Barrick then bids for Newmont. Okay. Um, now, I'll, I'll let George perhaps take us through some of the detail, but I think that the the interesting thing there is that it's very unusual in mining for deals to have cost synergies. Okay. So, well, let me let me just stop you here, and maybe uh, either one of you can can jump in and, and talk about this. But Barrick, this is pretty hostile on Barrick's part, right? Yeah. Because they seem to be very aggressive and kind of like coming in, and um, just from the columns that both of you wrote, it seems like they're coming in for um, for Newmont and not even offering a premium. <laughs> It seems kind of like crazy. So, George, why don't you just talk about uh, the merits of these deals and, and, you know, if they make any sense whatsoever? Well, we we, we, we kind of um, put a wet towel around our heads and tried to kind of crunch the numbers um, of which which of these two um, uh, deals are going to make more sense. I mean, we're, we're really looking at it from the perspective of a Newmont shareholder. What What is the best? What's the best deal for you? Should you? Should you should you back your own management and buy Gold Corp, or should uh, you merge with Barrick for this? Um, uh, this not necessarily particularly uh, attractive situation where you're not getting a premium. Um, and the, the thing that 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 is very striking about the situation um, is that uh, basically Barrick and Newmont 
there unusually um, in mining, there are a, a huge amount of synergies that they can get because they've got a whole load of mines in Nevada in the US um, which are right next door to each other. So it's, it's actually quite possible for them to strip out costs and um, get quite a lot of um, uh, synergy out of that. So when I think about that, though, synergies, like how do you cut costs? Because it's like you still need, I'm assuming, the same amount of equipment um, aside from maybe management. Um, I, I don't really, I can't see that, but maybe you can walk us through, you know, how that makes sense, what they can cut. Well, the, the reason that synergies don't usually work in mining is because you combine two companies. One of them has an asset in Chile, an asset in Australia you're actually spreading your management more thinly. Different, okay. Different. So in the in the case of, of Newmont Barrack, you end up with 37 assets, 37 mines across five continents. It's actually pretty difficult to extract synergies from that. It's different if the mines are contiguous, so literally if they touch each other. Okay. So in which case you might have Barrack trucks that are circumventing um, a Newmont mine. And if they work together and they're basically digging up the same ore body, the same bit of gold it's much more efficient. So okay. that's really how it's done. So it's done through procurement, it's done supply chains, really things like just managing your fleet more effectively, your trucks, your diggers. Okay, so there, there's a synergy thing here. That's what- Cost Eric synergies. Cost yeah. synergies, okay. I mean, basically the important thing here is that um, you, there are definitely, no one doubts, despite the fact that uh, Barrick um, is um, hurling a lot of mud at Newmont and Newmont is hurling a lot of mud at, back at Barrick, no one doubts that there are synergies in Nevada, and they are—they um, represent the lion's share of what um, Barrick says are seven billion of, um, in terms of present value, of synergies, seven billion dollars of synergies. The the issue that um, people are pointing out is why why does uh, why do you have to have a situation where Barrick takes over Newmont with all the execution risk and kind of. Um, uh, problems that may that may entail when you could just both sides if they kind of put their egos that left their egos at the door um, they could just um, do a joint venture and get the synergy benefits that way and so I think the interesting thing is that uh, what we worked out is that if Barrick and Newmont JV did a JV t- together both sides would be better off by eight percent they that would increase the um, the value of their um, their individual um, uh, entities by eight percent, but we 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 found that if Barrick buys Newmont, both sides would really only be better off by nine percent. So um, ultimately, there isn't a huge amount in it, and once you add the execution risk, that starts to make it look a bit silly to actually bother doing the deal. And surprisingly enough, that's what um, some of the bigger shareholders in uh, in um, these companies are actually saying. Yeah. So, so how how does Barrick kind of, you know, view this? Because they're kind of coming in. They're like, we want to take you over. We're not going to offer you anything for the privilege of doing so. Uh, but yeah, and we're massively slagging sudden, you off as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around how all of a sudden they go. Oh yeah, let's do a JV. Well, that's it. it the answer is it's, it's it's quite it's quite difficult because. Um, You've got um, the people who run Barrick, um, John Thornton, who is the chairman and an ex-Goldman banker and a very a kind of a very aggressive and quite, you know, self-assured uh, operator um, and kind of ditto really for Mark Bristow, who's the chief executive of Barrick now. And these are not kind of people lacking in self-confidence. So they obviously think, well, 
you know, we can come in, we can do this deal, it makes sense. Um, and, you know, we're not... They would argue that um, you need someone to control the JV, someone needs to be uh, drawing it, you know, driving it forward. And if you just have uh, two kind of managements glowering at each other, then it won't be as good. There may be something in that, but ultimately the problem for them is if their own shareholders are saying, um, we don't agree with you, John, we don't agree with you, Mark, then um, there's, uh, that, that leaves them in a rather difficult situation. Oh, so it's Barrick's shareholders that are... <laughs> that well, it's, it's, like it's the some, uh, there are some shareholders who um, are held positions in both as well. Huh. So, um, so, Clara, this sounds kind of like a mess. So, <laughs> 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 I mean, so what, what, I mean, how, what, what's going to come of this? Like, what do you think is going to happen? So, I think it was pretty clear from when Barrick made the announcement that it's really all about Nevada. And Barrick and Newmont, I mean, there is history here. They've spoken many times before. Previous managements, even under Peter Monk, you know, the founder of Barrick. Um, and in 2014, they, they got very close um, and had to, to, the whole thing fell apart um, because they couldn't even agree on who was supposed to run things. And now it's really under pressure from shareholders, um, a dose of realism. They're starting to consider the actual just a JVE. Um, which is really interesting because it means that they've walked back from sort of pre-2007 mega M&A mm-hmm. to something a lot more sensible and a lot more in keeping with what mining investors want to see, which is minimum risk, maximum synergies, you know, really drive the operating um, the operating part of it. And despite the big egos, and, and let's be clear, there are some pretty big egos here, I do think that on both sides you have operators. So Mark Bristow, who came to Barrick from Brandgold, is an explorer, an operator, geologist. And on the Newmont side, the incoming CEO, Tom Palmer, similarly is sort of an Australian version of that. He's, again, really an operator. And I think if you view things from that perspective, there is a lot to be gained from it. The real crunch, though, is how you divide it up. So how do you decide how this venture is going to work? Who's really going to call the shots? How do you value each part of the the um, of the ore body? And that that's all out there. There is some time pressure here because the it, the shareholders uh, in Newmont will vote on the Gold Corp deal. In yeah, I was going to ask you, where is Gold Corp in all of this? So the Gold Corp deal can still go ahead mm-hmm. with the joint venture. The two that can't work together are the all-out takeover by Barrick or the all-out merger with Barrick and Gold Corp. Those two are mutually exclusive. Okay. But it is possible for Newmont to buy Gold Corp and to do the joint venture in Nevada. Yeah, and, and, and our numbers suggest that that's actually the best option. But it does involve um, uh, ditching the Barrick, ran, uh, the Barrick uh, Newmont deal, which is kind of what Barrick were very much pushing. So, um, Clara, I want to turn back to something that you touched upon at the beginning uh, of this conversation, which is the frenzy around gold. I mean, of course, it's it's there's so much of it in the world, et cetera. But you know, you could say that for almost any kind of natural resource. Um, company. So why is there something more behind this frenzy? And particularly given that, you know, I don't know, a decade ago, there was a bunch of this going on and it just failed spectacularly. Yeah, <laughs> so, Barrick, so what's going on? Barrick was behind some of those, you know, possibly the worst deal at the height of the gold frenzy was Barrick's acquisition of Equinox in 2011. That was just a complete disaster. They bought what was essentially a copper miner, which means you have a lower valuation and they add to bright most of it down, a complete, a complete mess. And the difference between 
gold and other metals, gold mines tend to have a longer lifespan. So you, mm. you, you run out of it faster, basically. Okay. So the, the, this whole idea that, you know, these are depleting mines, you need to renew them, that, that's true for everyone. Yeah. Um, it just is possibly true that for gold mines, because they're slightly shorter, shorter term, shorter lifespan, you end up having to fill that um, a little bit faster. The interesting thing for me, really, comparing them with the diversified miners, is that the diversified miners, so the Rio Tintos and the BHPs of this world, are really not focused on production anymore. They're focused on returns for the investor. Hmm. It's all about how much can we give back to you? Are we really making, doing the best that we can? Are we allocating our capital in the best possible way? And here, there does seem to be much more of an existential notion that if we don't buy this company, you know, with Rangold, Barrick filled a hole, but it didn't grow. Um, so it seems like a different way of, of looking at resources generally, that you have to keep filling the hole again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas and the it, other guys are really quite, saying... It's also quite interesting that John Thornton, with his kind of um, background, he's yeah. come in and um, I suppose... If you looked, if you looked at the way he was conducting himself a, a year ago or so, you, you'd probably say, well, he's he he was probably unlikely to be someone who'd be involved in a massive, um, you know, dealathon like this because um, he was quite focused on return returns on capital and on you know why can't gold mine, why do gold miners have to be profligate and all all those kind of things that um, make quite a lot of sense. But uh, as Clara was saying, like. Um, the ultimately you've got to combine that with still producing more um, ounces of gold and um, uh, that there's been a collective realization it seems on in on part of the management that they need to kind of tally up with people in order to kind of bulk up and secure that production capacity um, but uh, yeah it does it, it, it so there's a bit of a bit of a kind of vault fast there but um Given that he's done that vault fast, maybe it's easier for him. That makes it easier for him to do a vault fast now and go back to a JV from the deal that he's very strongly uh, supporting. And another thing that's really kind of quite interesting in this is just the, the because of the nature of the, the the kind of egos involved, the 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 communications from both sides are really quite kind of aggressive. Like I'm just looking at the Newmont presentation here, and it says. Um, it's got, it's got a graph saying since John Thornton's arrival at Barrick and then a, a, a pretty pretty downward sloping graph explaining their <laughs> uh, their um, uh, share price and um, and saying how he's underperformed Newmont by over $12 billion and still pocketing over $65 million from Barrick shareholders. It's, all, it's really kind of quite personal and kind of yeah. uh, leery stuff. And it's, um, and, you know, Barrick is going to giving it back as well. And... Um, it just means that uh, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of bid situations can kind of get quite um, aggressive, but uh, this is quite out there, and even for even on those terms, and so it, it just makes it harder to imagine that they will all play along nicely after this. But uh, they might have to. That's, so that's where we are, really. All right. Well, uh, George, thank you for taking us through that, and Clara, I appreciate your time here in the studio too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up from Hong Kong is Pete Sweeney and Chris Bedore. Chinese telecoms giant Huawei is on an unprecedented public relations push blitz, I would say, in Western markets. They've taken out a full-page ad in the New York Times, for example. They're mailing invitations for all-expenses-paid junkets to visit them on Chinese embassy stationery or something, some allege. 
Uh, Chris, this seems unprecedented for Huawei, although they've had a lobbying operation. They're really going all out. What's going on? Yeah, so, I mean, it seems like a lot of this started last year when the U.S. government made a push in what you might consider the rich worlds of Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, to try to get its partners, allies to say that they would not include Huawei in any kind of build-out of their 5G networks. And this build-up probably is going to come, or at least kick off, in the next few months. So the, the time to do that is, is sort of now, to make those decisions. And what Huawei is doing is it's now pushing back in a very public way, trying to convey that it is not the security threat that the United States makes it out to be, that consumers will lose if it is excluded from the market, and that it's just better to find some sort of kind of third way or compromise option to keep Huawei in these these countries. And there's been some criticism of the way this has been handled in terms of, you know, from some certain erstwhile Huawei PR executives who have since left the company uh, seem to say this is ham-fisted, it's going to backfire. They point to things like, you know, invitations being sent through the Chinese embassy and also You've got this weird video of, like, Chinese children singing how great Huawei is that's appearing on state media websites, you know, which they say was lending itself to the argument, you know, that that Huawei is actually this creature of the state, that, like, the difference between it and, like, an SOE in Beijing, one journalist called it an operational arm of, of Chinese intelligence, right? Is that fair? I would be a little bit more skeptical of that, um, just in the sense that I, I don't think, you know, having some sort of relationship with the Chinese state, I, I, I'm sure it does to a certain extent, but we don't know exactly what that relationship is, is kind of the, the frank answer. Um, there's a lot of kind of assertions going around, but we don't, there's just not a lot of evidence to definitively prove one way or the other. We do know that in Huawei's early days, for those who know the company, that it was not a creature of the Chinese state by any means, that at some point, arguably, it was even disadvantaged vis-a-vis ZTE and one of its rivals for domestic contracts. It was only later that it became quite successful, especially abroad. Yeah, well, it's quite remarkable. I mean, they didn't, they didn't, like, like, telecommunications was originally an industry that the U.S., the Chinese government didn't think it could win. Like, I mean, there was automobiles, I think there was there's like five pillar industries, right? But telecoms was not originally one of them, um, as far as I understand. And, and you know, Huawei kind of like had to prove itself. It went out and got like some loan sharks uh, to lend them some money out of Hong Kong. And then they went and built this network. And what do you know? Like they started selling like routers and stuff like hotcakes in China. Um, and the Chinese government kind of retroactively took notice of like, hey, wow, these guys are actually doing quite well. So, I mean, to be fair, yeah. I mean, I get the question is more recent history where this company has been seen as like the serial violator of intellectual property rights, like their, that their mission was to go and, and hire people from other companies and get them to transfer IP, that basically that was how they succeeded. That and, you know, strong relationships with the Chinese military. So if it wasn't a creature of the Chinese state then, is it much more clearly linked now? It seems yes. Yes, yes and no. I mean, again, we just don't have a lot of publicly available information to say definitively beyond kind of circumstantial elements. And even things like, you know, when uh, like we've been on the receiving end of Chinese embassy and D.C. will sometimes send out information regarding Huawei and stuff like that. I don't interpret that as like a gotcha, like, aha, like you were you shared an office and you shared stationery and you were actually part of the Chinese government all along. I think in a a good faith interpretation is like you could reasonably point to say, do U.S. diplomats around the world sort of help, say, Boeing kind of at the margin? Does Boeing kind of rely on government contracts for like a lot of its business? I mean, 
probably. So is is Huawei much different than that? I, again, it's it's possible that it's not. That could be kind of the relationship, or it, it could be much deeper. Again, we just we really don't know. Well, to what extent does the or this? I mean, do you think the security concerns are are important so much as the industrial policy pushback? I mean, the United States you know, is trying to target the Chinese system. They want structural reform, and they're pointing to all these areas where China has built industrial champions, despite a lack of, like, endemic or or competitive advantage in their Ricardian sense. Steel industries, all these areas where, Mm -hmm. like, cheap loans and policy support have built these Chinese companies up, and they've gone out and put a bunch of factories overseas over business, or at least that's how the narrative goes. I mean, has Huawei just become a whipping whipping post for, for that? Like, we're going to make an example of you guys because you're, you're the easiest to hit? <laughs> well, whether or not that is the proximate cause of whipping Huawei, I think you, <laughs> you raise a very important point, which is just in China's uh, political economy— the way you subsidize firms and help firms is very different than in, say, the U.S. or Europe, where, I mean, you might have, uh, you, you know, typically there's kind of a budget line item of we're going to give this much money to this group of companies or, or whatever. In in China, it's much more, I mean, the state controls the banking system. The state controls a lot of the financial sector just in general. It can very easily tilt the playing field, so to speak, in a way that subsidizes or otherwise aids a lot of companies. Well, in 5G, it's particularly important, right? Because, I mean, this is a a big, I mean, in the past, China was playing catch-up, catch-up, catch-up in this technology or that. You know, arguably Huawei was one of these Chinese leapfrogging companies that used innovations by other companies through means fair or foul to kind of, like, get in front. But now 5G is where China wants to be in front. And they want to set this format. And it's it's not just another cellular thing. This is going to control how, like, Internet of Things works. Autonomous trucks driving down highways apparently will, will be able to use this technology. So it's a huge deal. And the U.S. is trying to throw a wrench in it. I mean, is this just like we don't trust China and can't let it win a technology format war? Well, I think there's two things to say about that. The first is that 5G is an excellent example of kind of the murky ways that China can subsidize players. So, for instance, I mean, they control all three of the major telecoms carriers. Can they order those telecoms carriers to build out 5G networks before it's economically feasible or there's a rationale? They also own China Tower. These are like very indirect ways that very clearly benefit Huawei and ZTE. Even if you never give them a dime directly, you've still tilted the playing field in their favor. So yes, on that count. As to is this just kind of an anti-China, like we just don't trust China's companies in general? I mean, I get the sense that the the political climate surrounding this question has shifted very rapidly, even over the last 12 to 18 months. And I think it's fueled, no doubt, by the trade conflict and, uh, yeah, these eruptions over Huawei. But And yet Europe seems to have backed off a little bit. I mean, it was interesting that the U.S., as you noted, is going after its allies. The United States has giant, long-running strategic alliances in Europe and elsewhere around the world, in Japan, Asia, Australia, and was for a while seemed to be making a lot of headway in terms of persuading these people, like, well, we do intelligence cooperation with you, and, you know, you're either on our side or their side, and, you know, you have to kick Huawei out if you want to if you want to talk to us, you know. And yet, Europe seems to have, and, and the UK seems to say, "Well, we're going to find a middle way." Is this a big failure of, of diplomacy by the Trump administration that they can't get Europe on board with this for whatever reason? To be determined. I mean, I think <laughs> it's, it's the real answer. Let's see exactly how the Europeans play it going forward. But um, I mean, I think the the pitch from Huawei now is, is clearly that. Hey, look, I mean, you might not trust us, but 
basically you could do something like what the UK does where there's a, a special arm of the intelligence services that will vet Huawei equipment and perhaps we could see other countries you know replicating something like that in order to get Huawei equipment perhaps a little bit cheaper even better than some of the rivals and that would somehow like go part way to addressing American concerns while at the same time keeping generally the Chinese happy and Huawei in in the country. All right. Well, I guess we'll see how it works out for Huawei, but they've definitely got an ongoing PR challenge. Um, Thanks for talking to me, Chris. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Clara Fiera Marquez, George Hay, Pete Sweeney, and Chris Bedore. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.